Hey guys, here's something new we'd like to try. We'd like to learn a little bit more about our podcast listeners in order to have better conversations and just find out exactly what you're interested in listening to. And as a reward, we'll give you your own pair of boxes and lined socks, which are very soft and cozy, by the way. I wear them all the time. Just go to the website custom.sockclub.com slash IEX and fill out a very short survey and get your own pair of socks mailed straight to you while supplies last. And they're also free. Again, it's custom.sockclub.com slash IEX. Also, when you do get your lovely socks, tag us in your sock selfies on Twitter and Instagram at IEX. Thanks, guys, and thanks, as always, for listening. Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of Boxes and Lines. Go, JR. Boxes and Lines. How are you, my little Irish friend? Brilliant. Brilliant. Well done. Very happy today to introduce our guest, a friend of mine, a friend of ours, both from the broker side. And now uh, Adam Manzarello is at CBOE, and he's the head of U.S. Equities. Adam, thanks very much for joining us. We appreciate you doing this. Yeah, thanks, fellas. I appreciate you having me. This is uh, great. Breaks up the monotony of sitting at home with uh, COVID, so this is awesome. <laughs> well, exactly, and we have broken up the monotony too because we are here back in the office, baby. Three World Trade Center, Ronan yeah. and I. Fantastic. <laughs> there's, there's yeah. not many of us, but we're back in here. Yeah. But um, so, so we we've known Adam for years. Like Adam was at uh, Bank of America for a long period of time, and and Adam, like time's flying by. I think you've been at CBOE for close to two years at this point. Is that right? One year, one year. So this oh, past, one year. Uh, oh, okay. Mid-September was one year, yeah. Time's not really flying then. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm only joking. But uh, no, I, I wanted to ask you from, you know, your perspective. Like I, I kind of came over from the sell side back in 2012, but that was starting this to actually go straight from a managing director at a bulge bracket straight into an executive at an exchange. How was that transition? Like, how, how do you view things differently? And, uh, you know, is, is, it, is it different now where the broker is your client? Yeah, it's, um, you know, I, I definitely have to say it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a tough position, but I, I enjoy getting a different perspective of the market. You know, I think one of the nice things about SIBO is it, it's a great transition to a company that's a bit more entrepreneurial, a lot less bureaucracy, and so, you know, when I dealt with a lot of exchanges, they were all great, you know, but SIBO felt like a natural transition um, and it kind of helps that round out my career. And it kind of gives you a totally different perspective about, you know, who's driving volume, who's driving liquidity, you know, also kind of, you know, a lot of the things that you hear in the media about like, oh, there's all this conflict of interest, how many people were out based on rebates. And the reality is you see guys that are working customer flow. I know it's part of, you know, you, your, your communication, but when you see a lot of the folks routing customer flow, there's a lot of review around performance and metrics. And so one of the things that, you know, we've been trying to do here is kind of reshape um, how we position ourselves. And we bring in some folks from the sell side who are really practitioners, understand what clients want from the sell side and the buy side. Um, so that's t starting to take effect for us, but it's, it's really cool just getting a different perspective and, you know, you also kind of learn who's going to pick up the phone now versus when you actually had the workflow <laughs> and were able to interact with. So uh, that's always interesting to see that part of it, uh, which, you know, you, you'll remember longer term. But I think it's uh, overall, it's been a great transition and it's a, you know, it's a tough position, but, you know, it's been uh, it's a good company to work for so far. Yeah, no, that's no, great. I mean, and I, I, I definitely echo the sentiment. We kind of are in the middle of a lot of things where you can see a lot of different broker flow and how they interact on an exchange and 
exactly like you said, some of the times, and I'm not saying IEX has it solved either, but we could probably do a better job understanding uh, why brokers interact with a venue and without the perspective from our side of the, the parent order, it's kind of hard to do because as you probably remember, or even from talking to IEX back in the day, all we can really look at um, at a peripheral level is sort of like the markouts as opposed to really understanding why people are doing what they're doing. Another thing I always found remarkably interesting is how much of the flow coming in is sponsored. It's still a pretty big business. And then oh, yeah. looking at market making flow versus a full service broker versus agency broker. So yeah, like you said, everything's give and take. When you pick up, when you pick up the phones, sometimes people don't want to talk to you, but yes, I have to ahead, say before, before I came here, I was very naive in kind of understanding or having a sense about what is an exchange you, you, knew or could know about where the orders are coming from, who ultimately is sending the orders, you know, what, what the character of the different types of orders are that are flowing into the exchange. The truth is you have, we have much less information about that than I might've thought um, before I came mm-hmm. to the commission, for example. Yeah, it's, oh, uh, did you know that John used to be acting head of trading? And yeah, so I, yeah, you know, I don't want to make yes. a, I don't like to make a big deal out. I don't of like it. to bring uh, it up, but he's yeah. brought it up like on the hour I every hour uh, today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we love you, John, like a pet yeah. rock. Mm, um, okay, thank you. <laughs> love that. So, so, love that, Ronan. <laughs> so let's let's get into it. Um, I, I definitely yeah. wanted to talk to Adam and ask him some questions on displayed liquidity, like the state of displayed liquidity, and then we can kind of talk about. The CBOE approach. I think you've done some novel things that we're supportive of. It's obviously, you know, out there and no one's arguing. Displayed liquidity has declined pretty dramatically over the past 10 years. And I'm curious from your standpoint, why, why do you think that's occurred? Um, and where do you think the state of displayed liquidity is just for, from your viewpoint? Yeah, I think, you know, it's a challenging question because you have to figure out like what's what's the right direction of displayed liquidity uh, versus off exchange. I think there's a couple things you could look at. I think part of it is also you've seen stock prices rise. Um, so people are less inclined to show their hand out loud, right? You don't want to yep. put too much out loud. So you see a lot of order flow either sitting in reserve or hidden. I think some of the statistics will even show you in the public market you know, there's a fair amount that's actually occurring that's non-display. Yep. Um, ETSs, I think, have kind of been static. You know, I think after everything all the brokers have been through and, you know, after the last couple of years, there's probably a lot less focus on it. You know, people are segmenting order flow and trying to interact with different types of liquidity to improve overall performance. You know, but I do think it's a tougher environment to trade. Um, I think it's, it's hard for brokers to understand, you know, what the true MBBO is. Um, I think people have different interpretations of it. I also think, you know, people are struggling with, you know, how much should we put into the public market versus trading off exchange. And then lastly, I think, you know, retail has become, you know, a bigger percent of the volume, particularly this year. Um, And, you know, I think exchanges are at a disadvantage. You know, for example, you know, you can't operate in a principal capacity. You can't accept quote rank or display in sub pennies. You know, there's obviously some exemptions to the rule that do exist. So it's hard to compete for it. There's extreme value in trading off exchange, you know, coming from my prior experience. You know, if you meant to trade, you know, 50 little, but you sent 500, they can provide 
uh, an accommodation. They're providing a third of the spread price improvement. So there's a lot of value to it. It's like, how can you get it? How can you get the exchanges to be able to compete for that? And that's yep. where the SEC, I think, has to take a closer look at what, what's actually occurring in today's market and modernize the rule set so exchanges can be able to compete and coexist with, with the alternative trading systems and the other market centers. And maybe, you know, part of it is they come up with a true definition of what a market center is and put some rules and regulations about, you know, what, what, you know, they have to file for around transparency and disclosures. Right. So I think. Well, that's, yeah, that, I mean, that's an interesting idea because we, we, th there certainly are huge differences in terms of the regulatory requirements um, and yeah. burdens that apply to exchanges versus alternative trading systems. And some of those may be justified, but uh, we, both our market and yours have been really trying to propose more flexible ways that exchanges can offer um, alternatives that sort of serve the kinds of needs that people have now um, yeah. and maybe allow them to compete with other kinds of venues. I was gonna say, before, yeah. we, before we get to, 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 to that, what I wanted to say, and Adam, believe it or not, people not in the industry actually listen to this podcast as well, which still blows my mind. But I thought what I just back up slightly and say, display trading for those of you not in the trading world just means when you look on the screen and you see a bid and an offer and you can actually see, uh, that's called displayed, sensical as that sounds. And non-displayed is when you go to a, an exchange or a venue, an ATS, an alternative trading system, and you, you want to buy stock and you kind of wade in there without knowing if there's a seller and you trade, that's non-displayed. And what John was just asking uh, Adam there is that over probably the past 15 years, I guess, I'd say much more of the innovation has occurred in the non-displayed world because exactly what Adam and John were just saying um, regulation has been much more uh, lenient, I guess, maybe there's a better word to say it, uh, for innovation in the dark. And now I think what you find is there's a lot of people pointing that, well, displayed, displayed has dropped to such a level, how can you discover what the price is if less and less is displayed? And I think what I wanted to ask Adam about is a, is a new order type that uh, CBOE had launched that I, I, you know, genuinely, I've said it publicly, I think it's a very good order type. I'm just curious how it's going so far. And if you, if you wouldn't mind touching upon that, Adam, that'd be great. Well, that was a really long wind up for the question. I know. But, uh, it's, uh, I, don't yeah. know if, I don't know if Adam's still awake at this point, yeah. but um, yeah. if Adam, you remember the Adam. Like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, is he going to ask a question at some yeah. point? Yeah. <laughs> Guy, I'm just trying to shut so, Ramsey up. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, it's, what's really interesting about it is, and I, I think the, the really, when you, when you think about it, one of the actually things that I've learned at, at this side is actually how long it takes to bring innovation to market. And when you learn about the process, like I, I know the regulatory process uh, probably all too well on the other side for a number yep. of reasons, uh, whether good or bad. But when you come on the exchange side, like if you want to launch something, it, you know, it, ha it takes five to seven days, you know, John, correct me if I'm wrong, but it takes five to seven days before they can accept it. Then it gets posted to the registrar. There's a 21 day open comment period. And they have 45 days to act, and then they could push it out another 45 days. Right, and they never um, they never act in 45 days, so it's always no pushed out for the automatic. And 45, there's and then... this constant dialogue going back and forth. So I, I do applaud, you know, Brett for bringing in some practitioners, um, which I think you know, IX, you guys have always had industry practitioners. Some of the other exchanges, not so much. Um, but I, I think, you know, they're bringing in people like Dimitri Bulkin, and I, you know, recently heard another gentleman going over there. So. You know, having practitioners on that side, I think, should help strive for innovation. I think, you know, Rona, you mentioned that the other day as well. But, you know, 
there's a few things that we've done over the last couple, you know, last year or so is we launched retail priority. That's a way for us to get non-marketable limits. Uh, so for those of whom aren't close to that, if you're a retail member organization and you meet the rule, the requirement to satisfy that you can send retail priority, non-marketable limit means that the stock's bidding at 10, you want to buy at eight. We want to be able to attract that to our market and it gives the flexibility to improve you know, best X there, like it improves your participation rate, improves your, your turnover. Um, so from a statistical standpoint, it's great. And it kind of takes away that potential conflict of interest that you're purely routing based on rebates, even though I, I still think that's an embellished view. The other part is, you know, we launched an order type uh, with MDO with QDP called quote depletion protection. So it's similar to DPEG, the way it functions and operates. But one of the things that I've always realized is that brokers don't have a tendency to post passive non-display orders in a public market because they generally trade with liquidity that's going against them. And so we launched QDP in June. It's, we've seen some great progress. We've also hired some folks that start to look at a lot of this data and analytics. And this is one thing that I've always felt that IEX did very well. You know, when they came in, they had a, an exorbitant amount of data that you were able to go back and talk to your best X committee, even though we may have not made the right routing changes to your satisfaction. But you had information there that you can be able to make a proper determination about the right direction to go. And as a result of us doing that, we've, we plan on launching some enhancements to it at the end of October as well. Um, and then the last thing we filed for was periodic auctions, which we feel is a great on exchange alternative to be able to compete with ETSs and the use of the conditionals, which estimates have at around 12% of ETS volume. So, you know, it's, there's a lot going on. You know, I think, unfortunately, sometimes when you start to innovate and you put these things to market, you know, the first reaction is like, oh, this is too complex. I don't want to do it. <laughs> yep. um, but sometimes you have, a, you, have a, you have a complex environment. You need to offer certain solutions like this so you can cater to a number of different constituents. And, you know, I think, you know, on the Rosenblatt conference the other day, they basically said, you know, it's not a one size fits all. And, and well, and you guys have come up with some re really innovative ideas um, recently. And it is uh, to your point about kind of like what exchanges have to go through in order to get anything approved. If it's at all controversial at all, or as anybody is raising any objections, then you got this shit show of like, you know, six or nine months before you can finally get it approved. Yeah. yeah. I mean, our recent order type that we launched delimit last week, we filed for that last December. It went the full 240 days to Adam's point. Yeah, if you're lucky, it's 21 days post federal registrar. The longest it can go is 240. And uh, we went to the 240th evening, but thankfully we, we got it approved. But it's exactly like you say, from conception to launch, it was over 12 months. And that's a long time to try something out. But like, like I've said before, um, I do like the comment process because you, you can't just put something out there and, you know, not to always defend the SEC, but I think they've been accused of just rubber stamping things because they didn't know what was going on back when John was acting head of trading and markets. <laughs> but now that there's yeah. real people running the yeah. organization. All right. I they, knew he was going to find some <laughs> belittling way to kind of minimize, you know, any way you can get that in. It yeah. is. Um, no, and I didn't mean to suggest that it's not an important role that they have to play. It's not important that they think about these things in a very thoughtful way. Thank God we got it approved at the end of the day. Because exchanges do have a different function than any other venue in the marketplace has. So, yeah, when we, when we filed for delimit again, it's, it's exactly what you said. And sometimes you light a fire, you walk through it, right? IX came out and said things are too complex. But in a complex market, and you want to offer a solution, it's complex. But if you think about it, the end user who uses it, I sort of say, well, 
complex for who? It's complex to kind of understand what the order type does, uh, but the intent is to provide a service. So it's, it, it's, it's, it's been a funny battle, but we're, uh, we're on our fourth trading day, and so far the adoption has been great. So we're pretty excited. So seeing you guys and us do things, I, I, I just think there's been no real innovation for a long period of time. And even NASDAQ, I give them credit, it's non-displayed, but like the mellow order type is something that I, that I think makes a lot of sense. And I'd like to see exchanges competing that way. And which is why like a, a question to you, Adam, is obviously there's three new exchanges coming out, uh, you know, basically out at this point. LTSC, and no disrespect to LTSC, they'll tell you their business model is not about volume. It's about like listing standards. Yeah. So I kind of put that aside as a head-to-head -head competitor, but like MyX and Memex are very real competitors for Flow. And I'm just kind of curious on your, your take on their entrance. Is it too many markets? Is it too fragmented? What, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think it's uh, all the above. No, I think <laughs> it's, you know, listen, I, you know, I was in full disclosure, I was an active participant about Memex and, and my view on it historically. You know, I think the key thing is like, when you hear their, the, the pitch from a lot of them, it's like, oh, there hasn't been any innovation. Well, that, that I, would, I would argue, you know, there are certain market centers that really have innovated, like you mentioned, SIBO and, and yourself and even NASDAQ to some extent. You know, there's been a ton of innovation out there. So, I, I, you know, that approach of going out there saying that there hasn't been any innovation, I think is a bit Yeah, that's, false. that's nonsense. Yeah, and, you know, I think you have to think about, like, you know, I think a lot of the pitches around a 100-gig network and a 25-gig network. I mean, listen, we just went through a massive um, C1 migration, and, you know, we had a lot of dialogue with our customers about, like, are you ready for a 25-gig network? And some of these are the most uh, technologically advanced market makers, and they weren't ready for a 25-gig network. So you also have to kind of think about, like, lower diminishing returns. Like, what, what's the value proposition of having such, you know um, – you know, networks like 25 gigs. I mean, it's something that we'll potentially contemplate ourselves. You know, there's some value to it to an extent, but is that really innovation in itself? And the question is, you know, we'll, we'll see how they'd be able to compete for that waterfall. I think the hard thing is, it's a lot different than what it was in 2009 and 2010. There's so much regulatory scrutiny Absolutely. around brokers and their routing behavior. And if you think about it, like even FINRA's recent examination letter that they were going to present, it's, it's really focusing on, how brokers route and why they route to certain market centers. Now, granted this year, given, you know, the pandemic and things like that, are they doing the same amount of scrutiny that they normally would have? I don't know, but I think, you know, for agency flow, I think it's going to be very hard to justify the move there. So I think it's going to be a slow burn until they gain some market share. And obviously there's some discretionary order flow and people can move business based on that and discretionary mean by principal or proprietary flow and people can make adjustments based on that. And, where the liquidity goes, that'll drive some of the, the volume. But I think it's it's not going to be as easy as it was, say, 2010, 2009, regardless of the investors that you have. Yeah, I wish you'd, you mentioned Memex or Members Exchange. I wish you'd explain something to me about that. Because when this was introduced, part of the, the, the logic or the point of doing this, um, as I understood it, was to create a pushback on the, the major exchanges and the sale of market data, right? You know, offer an alternative where there are going to be simpler order types and relatively inexpensive market data. But anybody who is active in the market is still going to have to pay for market data from all the other exchanges, don't they? I mean, I, you're in a different situation now, but it's not like somebody can just cut off the prop feeds from the major markets just because there's a new exchange coming on board, right? Or am I, am I missing no, something? No, that's, 
No, I think, you know, the prop, the prop fees is value in the prop fees, right? I think, you know, everyone always talks about that, the faster, but the reality is it's kind of like anything else, which is the way I always like to correlate is like a search engine on the web, right? You had Google, Yahoo, and Bing. The one that people use and they always revert back to is Google. Why? Because they can process data, be more efficient around it. So you could take in all the prop feeds you want, but if you're not investing in your software and you don't have the proper feed handlers and you're not upgrading all your, you know, your circuits and your hardware, it's, it's kind of like meaningless. Right. So that's why I always kind of laugh at, you know, like, Hey, you, you know, you have somebody that tells you you have to have prop feeds. Well, the reality is sometimes prop feeds aren't as fast as the SIP. And so, uh, you know, people still need prop feeds. Um, you, you're going to need the depth of book. You're gonna need, I know you guys, you, you do it slightly different. You're not in, you know, order by order level data, but people need the information, right? It's like, it helps you make a determination about whether it's a limit order placement model that you're deriving for your algorithm, or it's, I want to take liquidity or post liquidity. I need to be able to see real time trends to make that determination. And the only real way to get that is, you know, through proprietary market data feeds. And, you know, it's kind of, this doesn't necessarily express the opinions of the firm, but this is kind of like my view with the whole infrastructure proposal. I think we're trying to solve for the problem. We're not trying to solve for the real problem. And I think the real problem is getting similar data and content available on the SIP that you have in the prop feeds. And if you could do that through, say, like a distributed SIP model and you can cut down on the latency, yep. that could solve a lot of the concerns and issues that people have. And then you can make the proper determination do I want to use the SIP or do I want to use the prop feed? And, and most of the reasons why, you know, people are, are being forced to use the prop is because some of the buy, for, buy side firms believe that if you're not using prop, you're not going to get my order because it's faster and more efficient. But the reality is you don't have the right software and certain other things. It doesn't necessarily mean that it is more efficient. So Yeah, it's not, it's not know, necessarily I, the speed that even drives it, right? It's exactly what you said. It's yeah. what, what's available in the SIP. And if, if there exactly. is, you know, if you, if you can get all the, the data that you need, then I think there's arguments to be made back to the buy side that you can probably properly represent them. But um, w without that, I think without an augmentation to the current SIP, I still think there is like that dichotomy of haves and have nots. And maybe some of it's just perception that I feel like my broker and, and, and maybe, and again, this is not me knocking brokers. I'm not on that side of the business. Maybe brokers sell against one another and say that person doesn't even have direct feeds. I'm, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure, but like, I mean, yeah, with Memex coming on board, I think, if anything, people are just going to have to buy one more prop feed at some point. But look, the, the way we look at it from IX, we're the, we're the newest exchange until these guys came along. And yep. we've, all, we've always proposed, like, you know, allow innovation. And so it kinda, I, I, I welcome to the game. I, I generally do. But we'll, we'll be aggressively watching them and, and see what they bring that's different. But I, I agree with your point 100% because people were calling them bats 2.0 and all that type of stuff. And it sort of is in the framework of how it was like the members. But like you said, it's a very, very different market. You can't just flick a switch and be 20% of the market where you could in a pre Regan MS world. So it will be really interesting to watch. Yeah. I mean, we welcome the competition, but we're still way cooler um, than they are. I mean, <laughs> would, uh, our logo is be confused just. about that. Yeah. <laughs> hey, yeah. So I, we wanted to ask a question uh, hot topic is the elections coming up, right? And a lot of people talk about what type of volatility will come out of the election. Just curious, are you guys planning anything around the potential volatility on the election or just you fared well during um, the COVID volatility and we, we don't expect it to be anything more than that? Any thoughts there? You know, uh, 
you know, there has been some benefits with all regulation that we've had um, over the years. You know, obviously, regular CI, I think, it, you know, has proved very efficient in today's markets where, you know, they were very resilient. They handled, you know, dissemination of data, the acceptance of orders, the transmitting of, you know, fills and acknowledgements. Everyone held up very well. Um, and we continue to, you know, look at our, you know, procedures and trading, you know, testing scripts to ensure that it's done accurately and consistently. So I don't think much will change from our end from that standpoint. You know, I do think that at some point you'll see a lull in the volatility and the volume. Uh, yeah. um, but I do think there's, there's so much uncertainty over the next six to nine months that I still think you'll see fairly robust, you know, market volumes. You've also seen, you know, the advent of, you know, day trading for lack of a better word with zero commissions. Yeah. So that's adding to the, you know, the denominator. And I think, you know, regardless of which way this direction, you know, the election goes, you're going to have some, a lot of uncertainty when you have uncertainty that leads to increased volatility and it also increased, uh, you know, leads to increased volume. Um, so I, I still think you'll see robust volumes going at least into the first half of, of next year, and even, maybe even, potentially longer than that. Do you have any sense now that you're at an exchange about how the plumbing has worked, how uh, markets have dealt with all of that? I mean, I think the general sense is that things have held up pretty well, even with people mostly operating um, remotely and, uh, you know, the operation of the circuit breakers um, and all of that has, has worked pretty well. Do you have any perspective on that? Yeah, I think for the most part, you know, even like my own perceptions, I think, um, you know, it's been fairly, it's, you know, it's been fairly consistent what my perceptions were before I actually um, migrated over to an exchange. You know, the only thing I did hear during some of that that time frame was that, you know, there were some firms that were having difficulty processing um, trades, whether it's through settlement and clearance. Because one thing that I think is probably less known is a lot of brokers, you know, their back office systems are a little bit antiquated. And yep. old. So maybe that forces some investments and upgrades in that particular section, which is kind of where I heard and it's pure speculation. I don't know factually, um, but I did hear that there was some concerns of that when we had some of the increased volume and volatility. But from every from our te- our purposes and everything that we've seen from other exchanges, everyone held up very well. And the nice thing is, you know, the the you know the, the industry came together and they went back and looked at all the market wide circuit breakers and what worked well and what didn't work well. And there's some recommendations on the table to potentially improve that, particularly how it happens right at the opening. You know, what are the next steps to potentially correct that? But I think for the most part, it, it's held up very well. And, and my perception of the way the, the exchanges handle it um, is kind of held true from being on this side. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you completely, especially the week of March 16th earlier this year was absolutely bananas from an operational integrity standpoint. And yeah. everyone on the exchanges did well. And it's easy to, to Monday morning quarterback anything, but market-wide circuit breakers uh, did handle it well. You know, talking about COVID, unless you have like a major baller office at a CBOE, I can see a big like hockey game over your shoulder. I think you must be still at home, right? So this is in early yeah, October. Yeah. How, how are you guys handling it? And I say that like John and I and a few others just came back today. IEX is not uh, returning to the office until the January timeframe. And uh, please God, that continues to be the case. And there's not a massive resurgence. Just curious, are you guys fully remote? How's that going yeah, I think, you know, as of now, I mean, we're fully remote. I mean, there is um, obviously in, in our Chicago office, um, there are some uh, staff in the office that are critical for the day-to-day operations. Plus, obviously, on the trading floor, uh, there's some staff as well as our brokers being allowed um, onto the floor of the exchange as well. But, you know, safety is first and foremost. 
Um, we've done a number of internal surveys, you know, getting feedback from employees. You know, one of the things I do like, you know, at SIBO at is, you know, we're a much smaller organization. You know, we have, you know, less than a thousand people. Um, so everyone kind of knows everybody and everyone's very concerned about people's safety and well-being. Um, and these surveys have been very instrumental in, in providing our direction going forward as it relates to COVID. So, you know, early indication is that not, not until 2021 will we actually go back to the office. And I think even then, um, it'll, it'll have some voluntary nature associated with it. I, I yep. personally uh, would like to get some time back into the office. I think there's a lot. Uh, that can be accomplished, you know, in the office, whether it's, you know, whiteboarding and, and talking about new product ideas and innovation, that's where you get a lot of benefit sitting in the office uh, and having dialogue with people. So my, my ideal situation would be like Monday, Friday, home, you know, work from home, be in the office Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. You know, there's a number of other factors now around safety beyond COVID that, you know, also is kind of dictating people's views about, you know, how they want to travel t- into the office through ma- mass transit. Um, yeah. So. All of that's going to last a long time, I think, but it does feel yeah. like I'm in- interested to think, even when we get past this pandemic, you know, God willing, do you think there's going to be a different attitude or a different sense about the balance between kind of in uh, be- being physically present versus off and, and people are going to be, I mean, Ronan wants me here all the time, I think, because he's convinced that I'm goofing off when <laughs> I'm in Quag. I keep telling him it's not the case, but I but, don't believe uh, you. Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, Sorry, this is the mayor of Quag calling to tell me that you're doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I mean, uh, I, I, you know, a lot of people I think are foreseeing as we go forward that there will be a, a different kind of not work-life balance, but just the amount of time that you're physically present in the in the office. Do you, do you... Yeah, I would totally agree with that. Um, I definitely think that there's going to be a lot more acceptance about people working from home. I, you know, and personally, like, you know, historically, I was always not a fan of working from home. I always felt like you had to be in the office. Maybe that's the old bank mentality. But I, I think even at banks and brokers and, and the like, I think that whole view of you have to constantly be in the office is a lot different. And I think people realize that, hey, you have families, you have life outside of work. And that's always something that's been important for me, you know, as, as a dad with four children, you know, I was one of the few guys and I always got ripped on about it, you know, at four o'clock on Friday, I, I was out of the office and I left, I went home, you know, if you try to do a meeting, I wouldn't accept it. And, and unless you're like, you know, you're the CEO. Or the <laughs> unless I have to. <laughs> yes. Unless I really have to, I, I'd make a point. And I think, listen, I think there's, there's extreme value and being at home with your family and having, or, you know, having a work-life balance, whether it's through exercise or hobbies or whatever, I think there's, you know, it creates a better morale for people. Like people get a lot more enjoyment, you know, of, of having that nice work-life balance. And for me, I don't have to commute three hours a day, you know, hour and a half in, hour and a half back. So yeah, um, that definitely, that helps. And I, I, you know, I think one thing that'll really change is sales. I just think, you know, the sale approach is going to be vastly different. The days of, you know, going to a baseball game and, you know, a hockey game or basketball or going out to dinners, I think they'll still happen, but they just won't be as prevalent. Um, and this, I think, will really force a great cultural change to look at data to make, you know, proper determinations about how you handle customer flow and where you route, which I think works well for firms like, you know, CBO and IEX, and maybe not so much for others. But um, I, I do think there's going to be definitely a structural change about how sales is viewed going forward. And I do think that companies in general will be much more welcomed about having people working from home and, and ensuring that they have a happy lifestyle. Because, you know, if they're happy at home, they're going to be happy at the office. And that just generally improves morale. 
Yeah, I would say yeah, John's shaking his head in agreement. I'm I definitely absolutely. Of, I think you know. I I'm keep definitely of the old school yeah. that you wore, Adam, too. Whereas before, I'm like working from home is not productive. And if you ask someone who's at home, are they productive? They're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just as productive. But um, I've learned over COVID. Yet you, it absolutely does work. But I also agree with you. I mean, I I think the happy medium is a few days in the office because while at home, and I love Zoom, and we're doing this podcast on Zoom at the moment. Too often, something that you could turn over and collaborate with someone or get on a whiteboard and explain in five minutes is a minimum 30-minute Zoom. It's like that seems to be the minimum booking period that people pick, and that gets a little yeah. frustrating. I found my calendar gets totally full in and just the actual collaboration with employees. So 100% agree there. The other thing that I think will be interesting, and, I, and maybe it's my, my days at the bank, not that I was there that long, is travel. I've been like a crazy business traveler for the last like 10 years. And now as I interact mm-hmm. with clients remotely, phone, Zoom, however it is, um, you don't need to be out, you know, all over the country as much as possible. So that's something I think I will absolutely, you know, change permanently going forward. And I, I think you'll see that across the industry. And I, I, I agree with you. I, I think you will see less baseball games and the like, um, but it, it'll obviously yeah. come back, but yeah, pretty interesting one. By the way, the, yeah. the only tough thing, by the way, with yeah. staying home, though, is my wife sometimes thinks I'm always on vacation. So she'll come down and be like, hey, can you run to the store and go get me this? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's That's where I need the happy medium. The happy yeah, medium yeah, yeah. in the office. So yeah. I, have yeah. to, I am not home to hang out. I do I do get that. And uh, I think the only people who miss me uh, are my dogs. I, 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 I've never walked them more in their life, so. I think I'll have to do that when I get home from work nowadays. Well, <laughs> I, I think your wife probably has appreciated having you around there. God knows that woman, the things that she has to put up with. Oh, John. Yeah. <laughs> uh, John. Anyway, yeah, favorite, our uh, favorite question. If you've listened to any of our podcasts, you probably are anticipating this. Your favorite Wall Street movie, if you have one. Yeah, I think mine, mine is the, uh, the Boiler Room. <laughs> nice. You know, you could tell you could you could tell from my accent. They're like, "Oh God, of course this guy's gonna take boiler room." <laughs> but it's funny because the setting being in Melville, Long Island, I know it pretty well, and I think you know the actors did a great job portraying some of the, uh, you know, the, the ongoings with some of those you know chop shops that happened, and I think just the acting was great, and you know, I think all around, I think it was a cool movie. It was uh, it was one that I definitely watched uh, quite often, and obviously Wolf of Wall Street is a great movie. Just yeah, constant. they're they're fun. I, I will tell you, yeah. I won't say the name of the firm, but uh, my senior year in college, I went to an exact replica of that interview when Ben Affleck just basically shouted at a group of people. I went to this uh, office and was basically told, do you want to be rich and all this stuff? And we're in an auditorium. <laughs> There's like 30 of us. Uh, I never got interviewed and I got offered the job that evening from the principal of the firm. I'm like, hold on a second. I just came in and got yelled at. I would like to be rich, yes, but uh, so, so something is afoot here, but never did it. Yeah, no, good call, Adam. We like that one. And what we do is we always send our guests uh, their very own pair of boxes and line socks. I'm rocking them. You can, yeah. you can rock them with pride. I think Brian Harkins is rocking them all the time. He just hides them when he walks onto yeah. the CBOE floor. <laughs> yeah, I, I got them already, and I have to tell you, I think yeah. I, I – yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're, they're soft. Like, yeah, they're I'm good. Like, I always yeah. joke and say they're actually comfortable. You have the colorful ones, right? I got the black and whites. So I'll get you a pair of these yeah. too. Uh-huh. You probably can't wear that around the office, but um, we <laughs> well, we're not in the office. I, yeah. I have yeah. no. Well, that's I have true. No, I have no objection yeah. wearing it. Yeah. Don't forget, I have. Yeah. I still, I still have my IEX vest. So. Oh yeah, from right. the the Bank of America days, classic. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Anyway, listen, uh, we you know we're we're wrapping up here. 
We appreciate you getting on. It's, it's always good because too often in the industry, people talk about the slap fights that happen between exchanges. And look, yeah. times where we're going to disagree, we're going to disagree with our competitors, but um, uh, we appreciate you getting on and like having a debate and well, you know, a conversation in this medium. It's, it's always good to see you, man. Now, you've been a good guy to know when you were at Bamble, a good guy to know where you are now, So it's, uh, and you've been fun on the podcast. Yeah. No, I appreciate you guys having me. This is a great experience, and, you know, and I wish you guys all the best of luck. I've seen a nice uptick in your market share, so uh, hopefully that continues, and um, you know, hopefully you guys continue to make some um, you know, splashes in our marketplace, which I think benefits all of us, so we appreciate that. Amen, man. We're trying. So thank, thanks again, Adam. We appreciate it. Over and out. Go for it, Ramsey. Over and out. and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only. And IEX Group, Inc. and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversations may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group, Inc. All rights reserved.